Stanford University. Uh, for me, it is a privilege to uh, introduce uh, our speaker tonight, though I truly do believe that he does not need an introduction. Uh, I have uh, known Professor Barahani now for almost 40 years. Uh, first time I met him, I was a student, and he was a professor already at Tehran University. He had come to Berkeley, and uh, I was one of those uh, you know, stupid Maoists. Uh, who thought if the world should be either uh, in our color, and if it's not in our color, then it is not color, no color at all. And, uh, but we had a very difficult uh, time with uh, Professor Barahani. He was not our color of Marxism, but he was getting things done and getting them more done than all of us almost combined together. He was making it to the Congress of the United States. He was testifying for Congress. He was getting his work published, Crown Cannibals, by Random House. So uh, for the, it was a difficult uh, uh, dilemma. Uh, and then, of course, uh, when I had the privilege of starting to work at Tehran University, uh, our friendship uh, began. Uh, and. Uh, uh, it, it has gone on, um, and I have uh, run across him in strange places. Uh, I was telling him last night. Uh, the first night I was uh, in Komite Mushtarike Kharabkari. It wasn't Zedda Kharabkari, it was Komite Mushtarike Kharabkari. Sabati came to Komite to see me, and the first thing he asked me, literally, I'm not. Exaggerating, he said, uh, "Have you read what your friend has recently written about us?" Um, by then, Reza was already in the United States. He had written something about torture in prison. Uh, and then, uh, when I was doing research for the Shah book, uh, his name occasionally appears in these some of these documents uh, as the one person that the Shah is very, very irritated about. There are two people who the Shah is personally very irritated about who are living in America. One uh, was Khaybar Khan, and this was in 1959 to 65. And the other one was Reza Barahani. He keeps asking the embassy, why can't you shut this guy up? Why, why, can't you, why is he appearing before the Congress if you don't mean to undermine my uh, authority? Uh, I, I, I think it's far from hyperbole uh, to say that he is really one of the most prolific, uh, most influential uh, public intellectuals and artists of his generation. He has written and translated more than 60 books, uh, a couple of hundred articles at least. Uh, nobody is counting, but I think it's way above uh, a couple of hundred. Uh, and uh, they span the field of uh, everything from uh, poetry to uh, literary criticism, uh, work of fiction, to literally theory, from Shakespeare and Kundera to uh, Nezami and uh, Behaki. Uh, he's also relentlessly, I think, not just an artist, but a public intellectual who has defended the right uh, of artists, and he has also defended relentlessly the right of his fellow Turkish-speaking uh, citizens of Iran to speak their native tongue uh, in their private domains and in their schools. Uh, his work has been translated into a dozen languages, uh, uh, 
some of his novels that have never been published in Persian uh, have been translated and very well received in France, one of the most, uh, if not the most respectable publishing houses in France for fiction. Fayard has been publishing his uh, still unpublished in Persian uh, work, the trilogy. Uh, so he, he comes with a remarkable collection of uh, works, uh, uh, creative works, and works of uh, scholarship, and it is uh, uh, with all of this in mind and his personal kindness to me throughout these years that I welcome him to our campus. I tell you, it's a great privilege to be here because uh, some of uh, my former, not very friendly friends are here, and that's uh, really great. Uh, I remember that uh, some time ago I went to Berkeley and uh, I saw three men standing at the door. Uh, before I went in and I wanted to speak. Uh, they said we had a few words to tell you. And I said, yes, of course. He said, we were among those uh, people who wanted to throw, out, throw, you, throw you out of this very building. And we, we thought that we should immediately you know, come and see you and tell you that we are, uh, we are sorry. And uh, uh, I kissed all three of them, and I didn't ask for their names because I thought that uh, they would think that I wanted to do something about it. So that is, of course, after so many years, almost 40 years. So, um, but I've, um, um, uh, to tell you the truth, I've uh, regained uh, the, the friendship of uh, most of the old friends who had uh, great political difficulties uh, with uh, either a position or positions I took or the positions they took. And I'm uh, very happy that we are under the same roof again. Uh, <clears throat> this is going to be uh, a talk in English, although all of us uh, know Persian, some of us know my mother tongue too, that is Turkish. I could speak in Turkish, I could speak in Persian, but I thought that now that I have it in English, I should speak in English, especially uh, Professor Milani told me that I should do this in English. And I'm taking orders from him. In this paper, I'm dealing with three archaeologies, the Iranian monarchy, Islam, and the Enlightenment. There are three different clocks. You may not believe it, but I believe when it comes to the understanding of literature, in my mind, without making any value judgment, 
chapter 3. I have the right. Yes. I'm sorry, I have to go back to the sentence I started. You may not believe it, but I believe when it comes to the understanding of literature, in my mind, without making any value judgment, the three of them are ticking simultaneously. Although they don't belong to the same historical time, and certainly not directly to my own biographical time. Therefore, I'm equally conscious of the fourth clock, my mind. I look upon them as states of mind, particularly as the states of my mind when it comes to defining my understanding of what literature is and applying it to specimens that come to my mind and the strategies these specimens adopt to hold a mirror to reflect the idiosyncrasies of a mind in these disturbing times. You will see that I read Cyrus as literature. There's something wrong with my glasses. Um, You will see that I read Cyrus as literature. Elsewhere, I have read Mahmoud and Ayaz as literature, Rumi and Shams as literature, the whole of Ferdowsi's epic and the whole of Nizami as literature. The reading of literature in this manner releases it from the prison house of quantified material rooted in the age of its inception, inaugurating the arrival of qualities of literary beings in an absolutely different historical context with idiosyncratic phenomena of its own. By archaeology, I mean delving into the roots of a person or a movement to make him or it tick and tick and tick in my mind, more or less as an exercise in a disturbing obsession as a literary enterprise. This is a general description of what I'm going to to talk about. I introduced the topic first in a rather schematic talk I gave at the Center for for the Comparative Literature, the University of Toronto in January 1997. The obsession with the theme had been with me for a long time until I came to the conclusion that I should deal with the matter with a new state of mind. I'm quite aware of the fact that there is something both Borgesian and Foucauldian in the term archaeology. However, The main contention in this paper is neither merely epistemological nor structural. It is rather the deconstruction of an archaeological trinity within the framework of the evolution of Iranian history in mind. Since its glorious inception more than 25 centuries ago to its vainglorious Islamic presence of today. The title of the, of, uh, the talk is Bridging the Gap or Filling in the Precipice, The Poetics of Passage in Contemporary Persian Literature. Bastanapol ya pol kardane shakaf. Boutigaye obur betarafe adabiyat jadide farsi. In order to define the gap or the precipice in the Iranian context, I would like to give you a realistic example of the respect we generally pay to a leader 
whom we have always admired. He died fighting a bloody war thousands of miles away from both where he was born and where he is buried now. And suppose we were standing facing the tomb and hoping he would hear that the least we could tell him was that he created a country on the vast expanse of which we all lived, never forgetting, even for a single day, that we were indebted to him for having founded it. What we forget, almost collectively, is that it would have been utterly impossible for him to have a head on his corpse, because if we believe in the several meagre pages of history dealing with the period, he was beheaded in a distant land, along with some of his generals in the aftermath of the defeat. It would equally be utterly impossible for him to have had a body, because not only the dead rotted, but simply disappeared in flesh, especially when killed by their enemies thousands of miles away. So no one could fathom how a headless body survived the calamities of the journey back home by a defeated, leaderless army. We pay our respects without recognizing whether there is a whole body buried there or nothing but an armful of scattered, irreconcilable bones. Naturally, devoid of the capacity of being erected to the shape of an ordinary skeleton, at least to determine whether he was short, tall, or of medium height. And what a grotesque and simultaneously subdued imagination generations of this nation must have had, bowing to their knees before this handful of dust, and what an irony of historical magnitude it must sound now that another king, surrounded by a dozen other kings and world leaders, leaders stood before this tomb just a few de decades ago, screaming at the top of his voice, Cyrus, you sleep in peace, we are awake. And what an irony that this last king would be making his buried, his hurried exit in only a few years, before a turbaned exile from the outskirts of the city by the desert, returned home via Paris, sending 2,500 years of crown down the gutters of history, only to open a bizarre page in a paradoxical postmodern age, the first victims of which in a few years would be the youth who stood on guard for him to arrive, who disarmed all the garrisons, who arrested all the generals, the high officials, and secret agents of the supposed heir to Cyrus, sending them all down the same gutters. Two, if this is history, you should see what it did to literature. But before we embark on a discussion of literature, we should turn a part of that history into the actual fiction it was. We are now trying, we are not trying to recycle dead history into living fiction. What we are saying is that great upheavals remind us that either you cannot do justice to them without fictionalizing them, or the centrifugal capacity of fiction replaces in literary significance the centripetal capacity of poetry, and by doing so, suddenly the media of writing both poetry and prose have to undergo full transformation. 
In the ancient world, when the novel did not exist, either reality or rumor, and more than anything else, stories of birth and death of historical figures replaced oral fiction, finding their way into history. In my mind, the story of the life and death of Cyrus is as great a drama as the life and departure of Oedipus. By admitting this, I'm not saying that we, we forgot to turn Cyrus into a literary figure and uh, before it was too late, we should go ahead and do it. No. The literary, the literary fiction was there in fragments. Only nobody bothered to put the scattered fragments together. Our feelings of admiration and gratitude, quite understandable, are accompanied by a rich regimen of forgetfulness in connection with how he died. In a battle zone, thousands of miles away from where he's buried now, he killed the son of a woman, a queen, and the queen in turn took a solemn oath that she would capture and kill the killer, which was what she actually did, if I remember my reading of ancient history correctly. Contradictions rush to mind. How do we comprehend and explain it? We know we are perfectly justified in paying our respects to Cyrus because there are so many noble deeds attributed to him in his time. The release of the Jews from captivity in Babylon and the writing of the first Declaration of Human Rights, a worthy precedent, precedent for the Declaration of the same title approved by the United Nations 25 centuries later. We are getting closer to my idea of the poetics of passage, the great gap in time, time existing between the mysterious birth of our hero and the great story of the fall of our hero in a distant land. It seems as if the future hero had determined his extraordinary birth, as if he were born in a particular way after he had been killed. Had he been an ordinary man, no one would have bothered to tell the story of his life or death. Or maybe the story of his birth was granted a mythical dimension because of the extraordinary events of his life after he grew up to become what he came to be. Hence, the immense job of projecting some of the more important moments of his life onto the screen of a solid framework. However, we have just told you in a, in a nutshell the story of Cyrus's death without actually accounting as, as to how he was born. In this, we are actually following a fictional process, or rather, the path of fictionalizing history or even an ordinary event. Take, for instance, the beginning of one of the greatest novels of the world. In fact, one that started British fiction on its passage to glory. None other than Henry Fielding's Tom Jones. No one knew at first who the parents of the main hero, Tom jo Jones, were. Mr. Allworthy, a landlord, finds the baby around his bed and decides to bring him up as his son, only to find out years later that the boy was his own sister's illegitimate son. What I'm trying to get at is that literary, the literary device of postponement 
that determines the end from the beginning and we forget the beginning right at the beginning and proceed with the text to the end until the literary device of revelation with additional postponements in the middle tears the structure to pieces and the bloody conflict delivers us the structure of mythological infanticide. The grandfather trying to kill his grandson or the father, Rustam in Ferdowsi's Epic of Kings, killing his own son, Sohrab, and handing victory to Iranians rather than the neighboring Turanians. <clears throat> and I find strange similarities between the death of Cyrus by the banks of Siri Darya at the hands of a matriarch and the death of Sohrab at the hands of Rustam in Shahnameh, the Epic of Kings as if Tahmine from Ferdowsi's narrative had stepped back a millennium and a half to kill Rustam, who had killed her son. And what a strange coincidence bringing the gap in a reversed fashion between epic and history. This is what I have in mind when I speak of the poetics of passage, bridging the gap or filling in the precipice. Once you have become a famous painter, or a writer, you might write an autobiography later, or a biographical novel, a complete counterfeit to account for causes which led to your becoming what you are. But there are always shrewd people who are watching every step of you, and certainly someone might come along and expose you for what you've made up of yourself. And then you may end up asphyxiating yourself in the shower in your New York apartment. You know that a friend of mine, Jerzy Kaczynski, actually killed himself in that way just because the painted uh, bird was um, a plagiarism rather than uh, a genuine novel of his. Uh, the painted bird is a, is a very beautiful book. Sanaz, my wife, translated the book into Persian. You, you may have seen it. Uh, but it is one of the most important novels and it won him a very important award. He actually, somebody came from uh, East Europe and uh, uh, exposed him and he went to the, uh, to the shower and he opened the gas and killed himself. He was a very good friend of mine and also a person who was extremely protective of uh, the plight of uh, writers all over the world. I was in prison, uh, uh, in uh, the Shah's uh, prison, when I was given a letter signed by Yerzy Kozinski, and the interrogator asked me who he was, and I told him that he was just a famous writer and the head of the American pen, and uh, I saw that he had uh, defended uh, 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 me, and he had asked my, for my release, and he did so many things for the Iranian political prisoners. It was unfortunate that he killed himself, but of course, at the same time, it was unfortunate that he stole a whole story and published it under his name, and he won the National Book Award for that book. So, uh, to go back to what I was saying, this is the irony of, um, uh, of history. This is what I have in mind when I speak of the poetics of passage, bridging the gap, or filling in the precipice. So we go on and uh, we find one mother giving birth to Cyrus, another killing him. 
The first, his own mother. The second, the mother of the hero of another nation killed by Cyrus. A strange story, a precipice. Sometimes the quality of the death of the hero determines the episode of his birth. His mother, Mandana, the daughter of the king of Medes, speaks of a dream she had when she was pregnant, saying that a tree grew in her womb, spreading its branches all over the ancient world. The grandfather, fearing that the crown might pass from the Medes to the Achaemenians, since Mandana's husband was a general from the second tribe, decided that the child should disappear. So when the baby was born, it was taken away by the king's minister and handed to a shepherd to get rid of him. And the shepherd, for his personal reasons, did not kill the child, and the child grew to become Cyrus. How miraculous and novelistic the story of the birth and death of great historical characters turn out to be, once you have added a pinch of irony into it. There was, uh, <clears throat> this was how the Persian Empire was born. But this is just a version of the poetics of passage, bridging the gap or filling the precipice which had been in the process of opening its jaws long before such dream justifications could be applied to reality. Fiction, art, and all other forms of myth address this cosmic space of passage. When we look behind us or below us, the elusive precipice has opened its threatening jaws. A mother gave birth to Cyrus, another very, under very difficult conditions. Cyrus had the son of another mother beheaded. This mother had Cyrus himself beheaded. What goes around comes around. On the living pages of history we dream with the dead. Don't we in fiction? We may ask. We have seen how so many historical fathers killed their own sons or blinded them. And the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution of 1979 was the bloodiest scene of infanticide history had ever seen. This is the first phase of the archaeology of our consciousness, stretched in spite of all the tremors it suffered for 25 centuries and in spite of the downfall of monarchy to the present day. As we move forward in history, we step back to further archaeologize our history. No wonder that even after the downfall of monarchy, we're still trying to understand and report it. Contemporary Iranian fiction, in spite of the downfall of monarchy itself, draws upon this archaeology, whether consciously or unconsciously, in spite of the tyrannical censorship of the present regime, because fiction has its own mechanisms of subterfuge, because in it not everything is written consciously, and sometimes the written word betrays <coughs> the intentions of the writer by laying bare of the unintended and even the deliberately hidden crevices of the imagination. In certain cases of writing, contemporary fiction is the generic dictation of archaeology. If this is the beginning of a phase of history, almost 2,500 years ago, let us take a flight 
bridge the gap as fast as we can and arrive where we should be. We should certainly be aware of the fact that sometimes the precipice seems to be so far away that we can hardly be conscious of it when we experience it or become conscious of it years later, particularly when we feel that right on top of a mountain the distance between us and the headlong fall had been only a flimsy brick or branch and we owe our survival of a general catastrophe almost to nothing. However, the difference is so immense that the words that follow would not have existed if we had not survived the vital moment. I went in my, in my mind through the alleys I had been in and out of many times. I went back. I had to find my friends, but I could not. I kept going from this alley to the next, reaching nowhere. I went through a small square. There was an open door right across from me. It was a huge door with two or three dogs prowling before the open door. There was a man sitting by the door, breathing heavily. The open door was that of a mosque. Would you let me go in there and rest a bit? He raised his head, and I could not see his face. I could only see the slight glimmer of his eyes. Go and lie down and rest, he said. I went in. There were so many people resting. Had they also lost their way? I looked for a space to lie down. Some of them slept with open eyes, and the glimmer in their eyes resembled that in the eyes of the man at the door. Finally, I found a space and lay down. What was I doing among these strangers? I have friends there, outside, who are now brutally being cut into pieces. But you, son of a bitch, you couldn't find them, and you couldn't find your rifle either. I raised my head, and they all slept, and no one snored. The mosque yard was full of men in sleep. I lay down, and I slept. Did I really sleep? When I woke up, it was morning. I looked around. I was wet. Was I so pooped up that I had slept in spite of the rain pouring on me? The rest of the people were still asleep. Then suddenly I jumped up. There was a strange smell. Some of these people had not shut their eyes when asleep. I got up and ran away and up the stairs. The old man was still asleep. I woke him up. He looked up. No, his eyes were different from the eyes of the people in there. Why didn't you tell me that they were all dead? He looked at me with his open eyes, with his sleepy eyes. Did you ask me whether they were dead or alive? You wanted a place to rest and I gave it to you. But you should have told me. You should have told me. And I went back and stood on top of the stairs. They were all dead. So I had slept the first few hours of the first day of the new era among the dead, and in the morning I had arisen from among, among the dead. Maybe my entire past had disappeared, and I had opened my eyes in a new era. Although the above lines coming from the novel The Mysteries of My Land sound fictional, even nightmarish, I assure you they are not. They are absolutely real. And although in the novel it is Hossein Mirza, a major character of the novel, who goes through the tortuous night, it is as real as you look at me and see me, 
and I look at you and see you. Sometimes reality is so fictional that no fiction can compete with it. Archaeology deals with the dead, the revival of the dead in fiction. And there comes a time when you write pages after pages of the lives of the dead. Our graveyards are our museums. Three. In a brief biographical sketch of Ayatollah Khomeini, if I remember correctly, written by his son and published after the father's death, there is a remark made by another Ayatollah Khomeini, by another Ayatollah Khomeini's older brother, that when they were children and they were performing some kind of a story game in the neighborhood, Khomeini always wanted to be the king of the game. In Persian miniatures, I have noticed there are three characters, two of them, the prince and his mistress, generally young and beautiful, but the third person, apparently a steward, standing absolutely ready to be of service, once the prince simply beckons to him. Just imagine this third person moving in, a, moving in, in the second miniature, an inch towards the center, and the two couple moving just a half an inch towards the other corner. Now try to have seven of them, and when you look at the seventh miniature, you see only the shadows of the prince and his mistress in the opposite corner, with the servant crowning himself in the middle as the prince. This, I believe, is the structure of the dynasties of kings and rulers replacing each other throughout Iranian history. A former subordinate in the court, cunningly working his way to the seat of ultimate power, kicking the previous dynasty out. It is difficult to say whether there is any truth to the story in the case of Khomeini, but certainly there was hardly any Iranian king who held the kind of absolute power he did. It is true that the war with Iraq killed thousands of people on both sides, but it is also true that Khomeini did not start the war. However, the war going on, Khomeini killed more people in the prisons than the two preceding dynasties, the Qajars and the Pahlavis, put together. At first, it seemed he was trying to get rid of the Shah's people, the ministers, the generals, the lackeys, the torturers of the old regime. But he surprised everyone by turning around and getting rid of the members of the same militant groups who had actually taken up arms against the old regime and forced the Shah's army to surrender to Khomeini himself. An oriental despot to the core of his being, as it blown into contemporary, onto contemporary pages of Iranian history from time immemorial, he heeded no one's advice. He appeared to have decided to eradicate not only the monarchy, but also those who had been against it under banners other than his version of Islam. Khomeini thought that those carrying the banners could easily turn against him and his regime because of the vendetta that existed between him and those who had something, some inkling of democratic aspirations. If the long 2,500-year-old monarchist rule had come to pass, because the people of the country had revolted against it, handing Khomeini all the authority, 
Now he was going to introduce, introduce his own image of authority by ushering in his own version of Islam, even if it had been right from the beginning against the aspirations of the people who had revolted to oust the Shah. Something resembling a de facto animosity had always existed between the monarchy and the clergy from the beginning, as well as some kind of similarity as you find generally between dictatorial twins of opposing views. However, the image of the mullah in the ironical pieces written before the constitutional revolution to the, to the days of the Islamic revolution had been a permanent presence. Now this image could not be spoken of in any derogatory tone unless Khomeini and the people in his command took on themselves to speak of a particular clerical in negative terms. Now a reinvention of the history of the country had to be made by wiping out one calendar and replacing it by another. History started now, not 2500 years ago, but much later with Islam and 1400 years ago. A gap, a precipice of 1100 years existed between the two. Monarchy was gone. Long live Islam. And since the West had been an ally of the deposed Shah and the USSR was a communist state, Khomeini's slogan was, neither the East nor the West, the Islamic Republic. From the famous slogan, the word Iran had been deleted and only the Islamic Republic retained, defying both the East and the West. In other words, defying the revival of the ancient past, rejecting a communist future, as well as a state built on the basis of Western, of its Western counterpart, both its distant past and its present and future. If the Shah had tried to revive the so-called ancient glory by gathering world rulers before the tomb of Cyrus in Persepolis and crying out to him, Cyrus, sleep peacefully and awake, Khomeini dumped the phantasmagoria into history's dustbin introducing a slightly modest nomenclature and the country had to change gear from 25 centuries of monarchy to 14 centuries of Islam of the Shiite sect. The ritual of adaptation to the new gear took place in the speech he gave on the cemetery in the cemetery of Behir Sahra in southern Tehran upon his arrival in the capital from Paris. I will deal a blow into the mouth of this government. I will appoint the government. Khomeini's literary followers immediately hatched up a pen branch of their own without having any authority from the international pen, publishing their books, acting at the same time as censors of the Ministry of Culture and Islamic guidance for all books to be published by anyone in the country and even penning polemical articles and books against writers who had their independent characterization of the past and the present. Four, deeply loved at first by people from all walks of life, particularly upon his arrival in Iran, Khomeini's words in the cemetery were hailed as the opening chapter of an era against authority. People did not recognize that People did not recognize that I, at first, 
because it seemed to be addressing itself to the authority of the then Prime Minister appointed by the Shah, that is, Dr. Shahpur Bakhtiar, who fled the country to be assassinated later by a terrorist of the Islamic regime. But that eye was a phenomenon, absolutely vivid, without any signs of religious or divine obfuscation, arrived almost from nowhere, openly declaring its claims, leaving no room for the imagination of the listener to be dubious concerning what he was being told and what he was expected to do. It was adequately conversant with Khomeini's poetics of passage without an iota of compunction in declaring that the 2,500-year-old monarchy was gone and the 1,400-year-old Islam, Khomeini's own version of it, had stepped in and every man and woman, young and old, had to fall in line. In line. He was the reincarnation of a major fictional character every serious writer would have loved to portray. He absolutely relied on the specter of blind convictions the old educational system had failed to dispel, because dispelling it would have been interpreted as a dagger into the heart of monarchy itself, the king being God's shadow and the Ayatollah overthrowing him being the symbol of God. Since almost everyone in the country had been kept in the dark by the censorship of the old regime, it had been difficult before the revolution to know who Khomeini was and what he represented. The Shah's suppression of Khomeini's name and ideas of government had prevented the people from having access to his vision of Islam and government. Khomeini must have been overjoyed that the censorship practiced during the Shah's time had kept everybody in the dark about Khomeini's version of Islam. In fact, the Shah's censorship was responsible not only for his own downfall, but also for the ignorance of the people as to what Khomeini thought, and particularly his book, Belayat e which studied carefully, was even a worse version of dictatorship. Even some of the members of the Writers' Association of Iran, who had championed unhampered expression of thought, paid Khomeini a visit, and when the word democracy was mentioned inadvertently by one of its members, Khomeini immediately took objections to it by mentioning Islam, lest the misunderstanding may lead to confusions in future. In a matter of months, a new Islamic jargon was introduced into Persian language almost in every walk of life, and Friday prayer leaders in Tehran and the provinces, when addressing their clientele, held a rifle firmly in their hand, signifying absolute readiness of the leader as well as the people to defend Islam. Perchance an unknown enemy dare challenge the clerical authority. What Iranian literature required was a Rabulasian phantasmagoria in order to account for what was taking place. First in the politi political arena, then almost in every walk of life, censorship reached unprecedented levels, and Islamic rituals, some of them unpracticed for centuries in Iran, were introduced to the lives of people at schools, the universities, and government departments. An unbearable regimentation 
practice to levels of revolting repetition and exhaustion. What a phenomenon for contemporary literature to watch, to live through it, to suffer all its burdens, find a language for all its infernal and labyrinthine strategies, and to pass judgment on them by risking suppression of every single word of it, and even by paying with one's own life. 5. If this period of our passage to the contemporary world, an archaeological ghost by the name of monarchy, had imposed its so-called glory upon the constitutional revolution of more than a century ago, now the twelve imamate version of Islam had to be imposed upon the new constitution. In both of these versions, we deal with a real memory, memory gap. Rules in the contemporary world, because monarchy, I'm sorry, we deal with a, we dealt with a real memory gap, because monarchy, apart from its archaeology, had to go after a certain set of rules in the contemporary world, adopting itself to requirements absolutely antagonistic to its very essence, but badly needed for the country. Islam, however, introduced an archaeology, the adaptation to which was extremely cumbersome. However, in the minds of the people of the country, there was an unconscious ping-pong between the first archaeology and the second, with the utterly troubling idiosyncrasy of the state that there was no east nor west, and there were only the rules of the Shiite version of Islam, which seemed to be a hundred times more removed from the contemporary world than the old laws under the constitutional monarchy, in spite of the latter's having been relinquished to a formality with the court, with the court setting all the rules. In the new system, as long as one was not caught doing anything, doing something against religion and against the dictatorship of the religious authority, all other things were permissible. However, just as in the case of monarchy, it had been impossible to stop the march of history, partly because there had been on the surface adherence to some rules of modernity, in the new religious era, there seemed to be total misunderstanding between what the mullahs were saying and what the people had wanted for their country. <clears throat> if it had taken centuries for the people to alienate themselves from the monarchy, it took only a few short decades for them to open an unbridgeable gap between themselves and the state apparatus. The combination of the experience of two archaeological forces, the first monarchist and the second Islamic, and the great yearning among the intellectuals, writers, poets, filmmakers, and all the other artists for conveying of the present plight into the fabric of their works that most of them towards a deeper study of another archaeology, that of modernity itself. Every student, teacher, almost anyone educated, wanted to understand what were the roots of the Enlightenment and secularism, and how democratic movements were advanced in the West and other parts of the world. I cannot go into the detail of accounting for everything that contributed to the rise of the movement towards the new democratic movement. But it is quite clear from what is happening that 
two generations joined together in raising the consciousness as well as projecting its objectives because secularism was not a matter of discussion in books but a matter to be learned as well on the streets, the prisons, the under the table books, tapes at home and a thousand other means of approaching the right secular path in spite of a thousand hurdles. Since the concept was created somewhere else, so many years ago in so many countries, one had to take the present day experience of Iranians and project it to a world screen and open a dialogue. This is the third gap, the third precipice. Do we fill in the gap or build a bridge on it in spite of the insurmountable obstacles the government policies erected to battle the advance of history in the direction of democracy. Literature played and keeps playing almost an unprecedented role in overcoming these obstacles. Six, poetry, not fiction, was considered to be the main literary device of Persian literature. And even some of the great stories were written in verse rather than in prose. The great examples being Ferdowsi's The Book of Kings, Nezami's narrative Khamse, made up of several narratives, each the length of a novel, and Rumi's Mahnavi, one of the most readable collections of religious, mystical, and didactic stories. Fiction in the Western sense of the world of the word entered Iran as did drama through the constitutional revolution. But it took some time for it to get established as a genuine genre. And nearly from the beginning, it moved in two different directions, realistic or modern, with the writers sometimes experimenting with both schools of writing. Although there were exceptionally unique specimens of fiction written even before World War II, it seemed, however, that its progress depended on a greater uh, universal view of fiction. And this was provided through the 60s and the following decades by specimens of serious translations of works of fiction, as well as the opening of the literary dialogue in the country through criticism, both in theory and practice, written by Iranians themselves or translated from Western languages. But the great impetus for the writing of fiction was the preparation for the revolution, the revolution itself and its aftermath, the war with Iraq, with bodies of the victims arriving in every city and village of the country, with rituals held for the dead and the lost. Add to this the escalation of repression that filled the prisons of the country with the unleashing of torture, execution, and the nightmare of further violations of basic human rights, uh, basic rights of the population almost everywhere. This was compounded by the violation of the rights of women or the rights of those political groups and parties who expected more freedom and were not getting it. And imagine what happened in literature, what happened to literature itself in the circumstances. For the first time in Iranian history and the history of Persian literature, in spite of the heavy burden of government censorship, fiction reached the standard of a dominant form. Replacing poetry as the archetypal genre of literature which had dominated Persian letters for more than a thousand years. And this fiction, 
if translated properly, could easily compete with world fiction. The revolution was called Islamic, and although it seemed to be so on the surface, something deep inside had changed, and it was not the change of a calendar. Something as ancient as the Iranian monarchy had collapsed, and with that the pillars of absolute concepts of time had fallen. Poetry, the archetypal image and form of Iranian literature, considered to be timeless in the old days, could not have the stamina to face such a colossal transformation, just as prose had introduced itself as a medium that could present more of a dynamic, more of the dynamic upheavals of the society during the constitutional revolution. The new revolution, much more dynamic than the previous one, needed far greater means of description, long stretches of narrative, and everywhere you looked, there were people, particularly in the cities, whose dynamic affairs made them potential characters for long stretches of fiction. The challenge of the new revolution could not go unheeded, because not only the revolution had take pl taken place before the eyes of millions of people, the spirit of change had brought about a new linguistic fervor, a new terminology, or rather terminologies, for every walk of life. And although not all the changes, even from the early days of the revolution, were looked upon positively, as if everything had to be taken with a grain of salt, images and stories pouring into the consciousness of writers could not possibly portray all the manifestations of such an upheaval, as if you had to imagine this robust upheaval further in terms of literature to do justice to what had happened or was happening. What I am getting at on literary terms is that the revolution brought a literary revolution in the generic dominance of Persian literature, with fiction replacing poetry by overthrowing its static element and by replacing it by the dynamic capacities of the narrative phenomenon, with special emphasis on the fact that a new revolution was underway because this kind of colossal outbreak of repression, war, death, torture of men and women and even children, and the outrageous attitude of the authorities needed lengthy and detailed treatment, formally, stylistically, and artistically. Otherwise, efforts to relinquish this mission to centripetal forms would be a betrayal of what had, uh, what had happened in Iranian history. In most of the forbidden themes, the writer of fiction could not openly declare his position dialogically, but you could always rely on the lack of the sophistication of the censors, which led at times to cumbersome obscurantism. However, if studied carefully, the reader could see that the mechanism of censorship spoke through what was being said through the style of saying rather than what was being transferred through the actual content of the story. A short, unpublished story was shown to me once by a young writer whose character, looking for a place to, to sleep in a cold winter night in Tehran, notices a seemingly warm light coming out of a door in the distance. He hurries towards it, finding as he approaches that it is the open door of a mosque. 
Under ordinary circumstances, one would immediately walk in, take off his shoes, and join others to simply stay away from the freezing night. However, he takes a very strange position. He stands across from the door, refusing to go in. Uh, I'm sorry. He takes a strange position. He stands across from the door, refusing to go in, with the consequence that he simply freezes to death rather than going in. The story opens a third untold space. It certainly is not the rejection of the mosque itself. It is not the rejection of life and the acceptance of death. It is simply the rejection of life under a regime that pretends that the mosque represents it. And the character of the story simply demonstrates the fact that even death will not prevent him from taking a position against the symbol which the regime pretends at this moment in history represents it. And through it, the mask all the atrocities of the regime in the name of justice and religion. Six, you have to realize that I am not passing judgment on the revolution. For that, you may see my writings about it or the positions I've taken. I've hardly seen translations of Persian fiction in good English. But I may be wrong because I've only seen a few of them. They're either too academic or semi-literate in English. I've been very fortunate with the translation of my fiction into French, six novels, almost 3,000 pages, published by Fayyar. I think the effort to translate Persian works into English in this country should be kept away from some of the Near and Middle Eastern centers. Unfortunately, most translators don't know how to handle the object language because they lack training in English literature and the person who knows ordinary Persian and lacks literary education in Persian literature should not pose as a capable person to report to the person who has the mastery of English. We need literary people to do the job of literature. Any serious translation of a literary work requires not only the mastery of both languages, but also a perfect knowledge of the literature of those languages. I've seen articles published in English by people who can hardly read Persian or have knowledge of handling literary terminology. Just as I should not volunteer to interfere with the work of social scientists or psychologists, I would not want them to interfere in the artistic performance of a literary work unless they prove that their literary abilities are a match for their engagement in a literary expertise. Uh, seven, and it's I think the last one. It is unfortunate that the genuine literature of the post-revolutionary Iran has not been brought to the attention of the American audience. No period of the literary history of the last hundred years has been as productive as the last 30 years. In spite of the crippling effects of the censorship, the serial killing of dissident Iranian writers, and the consistent pattern of forced departure of so many genuine writers and poets from the country. We know that it is not only peaceful periods that produce great literature. It is, rather, great periods of contradictions, the overlapping of spiritual, moral, religious, and political tremors 
dislocations, collective derangements, wars, mass murders committed in the name of faith, a religion falsely promoted to the non-ethics of murder, and magnetic constriction of contradictory tendencies that offer themselves as the subject matter of great literature, deciding its languages, forms and stars, and finding manners of telling the whole story without pretending that the story at hand deserved actually the telling or the styles of the telling. The underground teaching of Persian and world literature, the underground training of the young generation of writers and poets who later took the banner of Persian literature on their shoulders and produced great literature, the translation machine of Iran's translators in literature, literary criticism and theory, in spite of the political and religious censorship, the plight of which has pushed many a writer and poet to poverty, imprisonment, and exile. Yes, all of these create a fervor, an energy, almost an underground and collective genius for maneuvering under hardships by the writer, the publisher, the critic, and the reviewer. There is not a single report in the U.S. about the workshops created in, Iran, in Tehran to train the young generation of Iranian writers in extremely difficult conditions. Most of these young writers, among them a great number of women, are the pride of the literary society of the country. It is not only a peaceful time of prosperity and democracy that produces great literature. Self-serving efforts have completely concealed the phenomena, the phenomenon which once brought to the attention of the world will speak for the underground training of, young gen of the young generation, particularly women who wrote and published some of the best fiction and poetry of the country. Since the universities were not ready to do the job, all the major works of Derrida, Siksu, Kristeva, Bakhtin, and many other forerunners of world theory and literature were spontaneously translated and explained almost more and more to volunteers who sometimes traveled from the provinces to attend workshop in Tehran. When you are forced out of the university, you turn your home to a university, and then you help those people in that society with all your might and may to flourish and publish. Genuine movements in a country suffocating under repression are first produced by getting together and improvising methods of struggle against the literature of vulgar propaganda imposed upon that country by the rogue regime. All genuine literature in an oppressive country is underground, but only seasoned fighters for freedom would know how to manage to bring the underground to the view and review of the overground and to effect genuine change. Sometimes dissent is not within the framework of what you say, but how you say it. And the explaining of this how is more important than what you are going to say. Because first, you've got to master the mechanism of saying so, saying so that you will be able to say what you want to say. Eight. In his introduction to the translation of Derrida's book-length article on Ellen Siksu, Martin McQuillan uses a quotation by Derrida, which I would like to bring to your attention 
and then end up with observations by saying a few words about its thesis, if applied uh, to the Iranian situation. And this is what I quote. I will call the unconditional university, or the university without condition. This is Derrida speaking. The principal right to say everything, whether it be under the heading of a fiction and the experiment of knowledge, and the right to say it publicly, to publish it. The reference to public space will remain the link that affiliates the new humanities to the age of enlightenment. It distinguishes the university institution from other institutions founded on the right or the duty to say everything. For example, religious confession and even psychoanalytic free association. But it is also what fundamentally links the university and above all the humanities to what is called literature in the European and modern sense of the term as the right to say everything publicly or to keep it secret, if only in the form of fiction. That's the end of quote. What happens when a country has had no unconditional university or the university without condition? Derrida moves on to another space, the public space, which will remain the link that affiliates the new humanities to the age of enlightenment. What happens when a country has had no age of enlightenment and no public space? Then he links it to the phenomenon of university and above all, the humanities to literature. And then he links it to literature as the right to say everything publicly. One immediately gets into all kinds of contradictions. When this is applied to the University of Tehran, especially the Faculty of Letters, and from there to saying everything publicly. But the problem is that one is not going back to the Age of Enlightenment or the adaptation to this system or any other Western ways of thinking. Because the Western Age of Enlightenment went through so many zigzags and ups and downs to reach us that in the long run we had to come up at any given opportunity in our recent history with a different version of it. I would like to say that the system for the enlightened minds of Iranian professors at the University of Tehran, Iran's oldest and most important university, was somewhat different. We went on a diet of uneven and combined development. The head of the English department, who happened to be also the Shah's poet laureate, had decreed that English literary criticism ended with Matthew Arnold. I taught modern criticism and modern works in English and wrote modern works in Persian. And most of the people we hired in the department taught one or two classical courses, but the emphasis was on modern literature. In fact, uh, um, you know, the, the two of us know almost uh, all the people who were hired by the Department of English. What we did was the exact opposite of what Persian professors did in their department. They were downstairs and we were upstairs. They were teaching all the classics, only the reading of it. In other words, they were giving only the meaning of the words. No literary analysis, no literary appreciation, only just, I'm sorry to say, bullshit, you know, compared with uh, real appreciation of literature. They were doing that. 
and they are still doing the same thing. But up, uh, upstairs, it was completely different. There was the French section, the German section, the English department, which was one of the biggest departments, and most of the people who were hired, they were teaching mostly the 19th and the 20th century literature. So some of the modernity actually came from such circles. Um, and most of the people who, who were hired in the departments, I told you about it, what we did was the exact opposition, opposite of what Persian professors did in their department. They never taught the modern and contemporary literature of the country. They never taught Nima Yushij. They never taught Hidayat. None of those things. They never taught modern literary criticism. Foreign languages of the universities were the bastions of modernity. And Persian departments, the stronghold of classical Persian literature, but not in the actual critical appreciation of works, rather in the reading and paraphrasing of the text. The Iranian way of teaching classical literature in the Persian departments is you actually give the meaning of the text, no literary appreciation, as if you were reading a difficult history book. So some of the words were difficult, and you only explained those difficult words. They never taught the modern and contemporary literature of the country. Foreign languages of the university were the bastions. I told you about it. What I did in the mid-60s was to take, case, to take the case of literary criticism to the public sphere, sphere, publishing articles on a weekly basis, both in theory and practical criticism. After the revolution, when I was fired from the university, we started our nights of reading in writers' homes. And one day, suspecting that underneath our apartment there seemed to be an open space, my wife and I started digging into it through the parking lot and found, to paraphrase Derrida's words, an open space to which, after minor repairs, I invited the members of my literary workshop later, uh, which after minor repairs, I invited the members of my literary workshop um, later to be called in the press as basement workshop. My wife, uh, we uh, went downstairs and she just raised her fist and, you know, knocked on this uh, wall. And we saw that behind it seemed to be completely empty. So he told me, get the uh, get the pick, uh, and then I uh, just made a hole on the wall, and then we, we, we extended a very long pole into that thing. Uh, I think you came and saw the, the place, Mr. Bezai. You have seen it. We, we extended the, play, uh, the thing in there, and we found that under our house, there was almost a house that was completely empty. We turned it into the literary workshop and uh, we used it uh, as a literary place. So we called it a uh, basement workshop. I'm proud that some of the young men and women of those days are the most famous poets and writers of the young generation. And in this subterranean fashion, we dug a tunnel to the open space of literature, one night for theory, another night for creative work. And at the end of the month, Readings by outstanding poets, novelists, and translators 
for the people of the workshop with a large audience who stood listening at the parking lot. And one night I invited my friend Manucher Badi'i to the workshop and he gave the audience a reading of 30 pages of his translation of Joyce's Ulysses in Persian, a book which has been waiting for a permit by the Iranian government for more than 15 years to see the light of the day in Persian language, a minor contribution to Poetics of Passage, Bridging the Gap or Filling in the Precipice. Thank you. Any questions? <laughs> Don't ask difficult questions. <laughs> just, just simple. You know. uh, you were complaining about the, the, the downstairs about the classical teaching only class, only reading and the, and translating that stuff. Uh, uh, I. Don't you find it in the psychology of Iranians too that they they stay in the past uh, and they don't recall future? And this is an endemic problem with Iranians. I really appreciate you bridging all the gaps of 25 years, uh, 2,500 years of history, and <coughs> fictionalizing them some you know historical facts <coughs> and. I see, th this is really a, a, a work that you need, you have done it, because you are, you're in your own way, you are a historian, you are a critic, you are a poet, you are a writer, you are, you are fiction writing. I am everything almost. <laughs> no, so, yeah, this is what you have done, and it's excellent, really, I, you know, I think everybody enjoys it, and thank you very much. But, uh, there are the issues with Iranian culture. One is, uh, uh, you know, living in the past and uh, creating myth. For example, I give an example. Uh, for them, we don't know really who was Haryam. You know, if you read Peruvi's uh, version of Haryam, uh, Elbel Sultan's version of, version of Haryam. Or, or Saudi Dayat's version of Khayyam. They have always classified, okay, these 32 quatrains belong to Khayyam, but this is, you know, but when we go back, we see that after Khayyam's 200 years of Khayyam's death, only there were two quatrains in the Arabic language, and they were not in, in Persian. Everybody has come up, you know, with, the, you know, in order to, sit, to complain about the, the authority, the, the pietism, and all that. They compose their own words and they say they belong to Khayyam. We, we know Khayyam as a, uh, you know, a, a astronomer or, or what scientist, whatever, you know, they have worked on that as a lot, you know, you're a mathematician. Uh, but do you, I just wanted to know if, if I would ask, you know, do we have anything with the endemic problem of living in the past, creating myth, you know, Khayyam are two people. We have two Khayyams over there, a mythical Khayyam, a real Khayyam. And this is with everyone in the history. Uh, uh, let me just uh, say that um, what I was trying to do in this paper 
Because your question is extremely general, and everybody could respond to it. Um, <clears throat> I was trying to say that we are, uh, at this present time, we're living with three different times. One of those times is the time of Iranian history. So I wanted to show that Cyrus, the appeal of Cyrus to the present generation, is that there's something fictional in it. You know, it's it's more or less like great great fiction. You take the uh, you take the end of the life and then you go back to the beginning, and this is this is what generally happens in literature. So, uh, what I want to say is that that is one arc, that's one past, and the knowing of that past has been one of the obsessions of our uh, our generations. Everybody has told us that it exists. And somehow we read it, and the, the whole world also says that we are one of the ancient civilizations of the world, and why not know it? That's one. That's why we go back and revive it, in order to say that we are not just this person who's lived 70 years or 50 years. We are a completely different species of uh, human beings. The second, of course, is, after all, you've seen it has come, it has taken over, you see, it's uh, for the first time uh, in almost a thousand years, it has actually raised its banner on, uh, over, above our heads and it says, I exist and you don't exist, you should exist exactly like I exist. That is Khomeini. Okay. And he's come, there's a reason for his coming. Otherwise it would have been impossible for him to come. That is what practical history is. We were always idealizing history. He didn't idealize it. He realized it. He created it. We goofed. We were always after subjective, beautiful things. I, I, I'm still uh, after those things. But the fact is that he's done this and he's come and I'm responsible for his being there because I did not discuss him in the past. That's all. I feel that all of us should have uh, this, this kind of almost bad conscience that we did not, we did not discuss Islam with, uh, uh, with rational approach and we did not discuss what he, was, what he was doing. We did not get the books, we did not read them, we did not go to Qom to, uh, you know, to find out. Two people went to see Khomeini, two intellectuals. The first one was Nadirpur, because he wrote a poem criticizing the situation in Qom. And Khomeini, in those days, he was not uh, uh, a significant person, in fact, because the poem was written even before 1960, you know, before the 60s. So Khomeini told someone, tell this poet to come and see me. And then uh, Nadepur goes and sees Khomeini. He's the first uh, intellectual who's seen. Uh, this is, uh, I was told by Dr. Enayat that he went and saw Khomeini. And of course in those days Khomeini was not, a, you know, was not uh, an important character. So he went and saw him and he said, now that this is the case, and you're quite right, see, I wish I had the poem and I could read it. Um, to you. It's a very short poem and you can, ha you can find it in any collection of Nadepur's poetry. Uh, yeah. uh, 
uh, he said, and Khomeini said, why don't you some, do something to correct it? He, he told Nadepur, and Nadepur has, uh, you know, Dr. Enayat told me about it because he knew that Nadepur had gone to see Khomeini. The second person who went to see Khomeini was Al Ahmad. And uh, he's spoken on the TV, Khomeini actually, when uh, Shamsa Al Ahmad went to see him. He told uh, Shams that your brother came to see me and he gave me Arab uh, Zadiki and he said, in Khuzabalatram Avardam Khibbatu. Uh, parts of it, of course, was really Ghuzabalat. <laughs> and uh, he, he gave it to him. And then there was, there isn't any kind of uh, intellectual response to what happened, uh, you know, in Rome or in the other places. Not that we should have, we should have paid attention in this manner, okay? But the thing is that we simply thought that they were not going to make a comeback. See, there, wasn't, there isn't a single writing in all the works of the social scientists, in all the works of the literary people, that Islam is coming back. There is certainly uh, Shariati, but Shariati, if he had lived, he would have been killed. Because Khomeini was, had always been against Shariati. Okay. So, uh, the, the understanding of one of the greatest phenomena by the, uh, by the Iranian intellectuals, the closest was what Al Ahmad wrote. That's, uh, not that that is considered to be genuine, because I don't think that Al Ahmad himself could understand uh, all of those things. But he came from a religious family and he knew some of the difficulties and so forth. So what I'm saying is that <coughs> literature has done this. If you read The Blind Owl, I think that The Blind Owl is a condemnation of Khomeini. Because when you look at Piremard, Piremard de Khenzer Penzeri, the first part and the second part. In the first part, he's the, you know, the great figure who's in love with a woman. The second, the woman is a prostitute. Okay. You have, on the one hand, you have the ethereal woman, and on the other hand, you have the prostitute. The, the real Iranian woman doesn't exist in Bufakur. That is the, that, uh, that I think is a religious type of woman. That is either completely pure or a prostitute. In between, the, the, the objective woman doesn't exist there. Okay. It doesn't exist. The portrait, it's either a, a very bad novel like Shohara Ohanum, see, or an excellent novel like Bufekur, but at the same time either idealized or completely uh, demonized. Okay. It's, uh, it's either she's an angel or a prostitute. See. And in between, you don't have it. You don't have anything else. See? And of course, the blind owl certainly is a masterpiece, and the ideal woman for most of us is the first woman. See? Okay. Yes, please. Uh, this question is hypothetical in a way. 
40, almost 40 years ago, I purchased a book in this country in English called God's Shadow of Zelda. And I'm just uh, wondering if you wanted to create or to write another book about Khomeini today, the civility of criticism probably in the book, comparing to that book about Khomeini, how would it be? And what would be the title if you choose a title? I think the title would be the same. <laughs> because uh, Zillullah was stolen from religion. And uh, the Shah, you know, Sayyid Khuda, actually Sayyid Khuda was someone else. That's Khomeini. He had taken it away and he came and took it away from him. So this, this has actually taken place. So I personally predicted that Khomeini was coming and I wrote the God's shadow. See, it's there. Frankly, when I went, I was taken almost in the second imprisonment, I was taken into the same cells first. I had not seen Evin. During the Shah's time, I was not taken to Evin. I stayed, uh, you know, in the, um, uh, no, in Komite, Komite Mushtarak is in the Kharabkari. Most of you have suffered some of the things. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, he just told you that. Uh, uh, but the problem is, that uh, the prison, I didn't write the prison poems again because God's shadow could only be republished and it would be the same thing. And it was actually the same people, the same rooms. You see. It was actually the same rooms. And uh, uh, one, of the, one of the great things that happened, um, I was, uh, there, was a, there was an interrogator and the interrogators uh, uh, asked, uh, asked me uh, to, do, to do something uh, for him. And I said, what is it? He said, um, my wife uh, is a student at the university. He was a torturer. He was a torturer. And he asked me, could you write, not, not this time, but last time, uh, I mean, during Shaw's time, that would you, would you do something about his, her thesis? Mm -hmm. I said, uh, what do you want me uh, to do? The first thing, I, of course, I wanted was to get in touch with my home. You know, with home. I said, well, you can, you can ask my wife to send some books, and uh, I will sit down and uh, write something about it. He said, no, the, the subject has already been chosen. And you know, he gave me the subject, and I sat down and wrote the thesis of this to, uh, torturous wife and uh, gave it to him. But that man, that man, he was um, in charge of um, um, burning people's bodies, you know, as a part of torture, you see. He was extremely handsome, you see. Uh, but at the same time, now he's got a restaurant in Tehran, you see. In other words, uh, it's, uh, these stories can be studied, you know, by writers to find out what kind of people are these people, you see. I, uh, I remember my own, uh, I've never been a kind of active uh, uh, politician, 
I've I've never had, you know, people don't know me as as a person who's a political person. Politics in literature, yes. But when it comes to, and politics in discussion, yes. But when it comes to political writing, there's only one book I've written. What happened in the Iranian um, revolution and what will happen, see. And that was Tiri Betaiki. But the thing is that um, they, they turn you into something completely different. They think that you are a political creature and nothing else. So nobody cares. And then out of this, come, there is your mind. See. It turns into hell. If you have the, you know, the, the, uh, the imagination of a writer, which I think, at least, if, even if I may not have succeeded in putting that imagination into writing, I have that imagination. I'm obsessive, I should say. You are always in fear. You're always creating some kind of courage in yourself so that you will face the calamities of interrogation, torture, and all of those things. You see, you, um, uh, because they don't, always, um, um, uh, they don't always threaten you. They threaten your daughter. They threaten your wife. In other words, they tell you that this is what, what will happen. All of those things take place. So, um, so your, your mind, even if you write something else and not about torture, not about uh, the political prisoners and so forth, your mind is there, complete, a completely different thing after you've gone to prison. After you've uh, suffered uh, either torture or psychological torture, which is worse than physical torture. So you're always dealing with a, uh, with a, with a particular uh, situation. I'm sorry, I got off the... Uh, yes? Uh, sorry, you will excuse my English language, but I try to say it in English. And through your, your speech, you said that the censorship during the Shah deprived the people of Iran of knowing about Khomeini. Uh, maybe this is true for the farmers and the illiterate and the workers or those people that they are not associated with books and university professors and the intellect communities, the large communities. I believe this is a, this is our intellect is committed something to the lack of words, I would say crime. When they you say that is they don't know about Islam, they don't know about community. And they believe they didn't know. Uh, do you agree with me that is the intellectual people this is from the writers, poet uh, thinkers, whatever, they had a bad misunderstanding of Khomeini, misunderstanding of Islam, and if in the Tehran street, those illiterate people, emotional, zealous religious people, is walking the street, I am not going to blame you, but what do you think about those thinkers, writers, that they walk in the street, not knowing what is Khomeini's and what is Islam. I'll ask you a question and then I'll answer that. Have you ever seen any mullah like Khomeini? Any, any, any uh, Yes. 
Have you seen? No. Have you seen anyone like him? Like Khomeini. Like Khomeini. Because everyone, everyone. Now everyone they have killed. Everyone. Else. Everyone has killed. Every every Ahund has killed. No, no, no. It, it is. It is when you don't you speak with Khomeini, you don't know the philosophy and the Islam as the religions behind Khomeini. You see, Khomeini he represents. He represents the philosophy. He represents Islamic history. Yes. It is. It is. If not Khomeini, would be another one. Can be Khomeini. I think that. I think. I think. I think Khomeini. I think Khomeini is a phenomenon for itself. I have. Uh, you know. I, I, I agree I, with you that this Khomeini is phenomenon. If we don't understand the Islam. Uh, I'm well, sorry. We have time for one more. Question. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the person who is responsible for the equipment needs to pick it up as the gentleman. They were supposed to pick it up at 8 o'clock, but I, I told them we'll take another. So let's have one more. من درباره نژاد آریایی در سراسر کراند کنبوز کوچکتری اشاره من کاری ندارم که من در سوال ایشون جواب میدم نه نه من یه چیزی نگفتم من یه چیزی نگفتم من معتقدم که بله سلطنت هم به همون اندازه کشتار کرده خیلی هم آدم کشت من هم سلطان محمودش رو میگم ببین در حدود 1100 سال آدم خاران تاشدار از نجاد خود من بوده ترک بود تمام حکومت بعد از اسلام حکومت بعد از اسلام من از این اشتباه نمی کنم که بگم که تمام سلطنت ایران در اختیار آریایی ها بوده بدلیم که تمام تقریبا بعد از اسلامش یا عرب بودن یا بعدش ترک ها بودن هزار سال حکومت کردند و در این حال برغم این که ممکنه که خیلی ظلم و بدبختی و فلان اینا آورده باشن ولی حقیقتش اینه که اونا اجازه دادن که زبان فارسی این رشد رو داشته باشه که در حالی که هرگز کسانی که حکومت رو به دست گرفتن و از دست اونها گرفتن به هیچ ترکی اجازه ندادن که زبان مادری خودش یاد بگیره این واقعیت 1100 سال 1200 سال از زمان غزنویان حکومت در اختیارشون بوده درخشان ترین چیز ادبیات دوران چیز دوران به صلاح خراسانی همش ترک حکومت کرده دوران سعدی و حافظ اتابکان فارس بوده اتابکان به صلاح فارس بودا همشون اتابک بوده من من بکی من کی گفتم که آریایی ها آدم خارن For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.